1: Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. My name is Linda House. I'm the president of the Cancer Support Community, and it's such a pleasure to be sitting in for your regular host, Kim Peebledo, today. The Cancer Support Community is a global network. Um, we're a nonprofit. We have 170 locations, including Cancer Support Community and Gilda's Club Centers throughout the United States and internationally. These locations, along with a toll-free helpline, digital services, and educational materials provide around $50 million in free support services to patients and their families each year. We're very proud to be able to, to offer that to people who are impacted by cancer. If you ask a cancer survivor what their most vivid memory is, around their cancer journey, they'll likely tell you two points in time. One is the day that they received their diagnosis and the second is the day that they ended the active phase of their treatment. And while the end of treatment represents an important milestone and one that is really deserving of celebration, we do know that for many patients, cancer treatment doesn't truly end when the treatment is done because cancer survivors now have their own special needs and concerns that need to be incorporated into their ongoing care. In 2006, the Institute of Medicine released a report that was called From Cancer Patient to Survivor. Lost in Transition. We've sort of shortened that to just be called Lost in Transition, but that's the formal, the, the formal name. And the idea was, was to, to really highlight and showcase that lost period of time from patients receiving a diagnosis and what we would call acute treatment to now going back into their new normal or their regular life, and I'm sort of doing air quotes around new, normal, and and regular life, because as we know, um, things are different moving forward. So today, we have Dr. David Androsky and Dr. Jill Mitchell, and we're going to really talk with them about this concept of survivorship and get even deeper into some of the work that they're they're doing for, for patients. So let me start with Dr. Jill Mitchell, who is an oncology social worker with Rocky Mountain Cancer Centers in Boulder, Colorado. She's also the psychosocial research program coordinator for the Rocky Mountain Cancer Center's network. Prior to becoming a social worker, Jill completed a doctorate in medical anthropology and psychocultural studies at UCLA where her research focused on the experiences of women living with advanced cancer. Presently, in addition to offering individual counseling and support groups for cancer patients, survivors, and their loved ones in the outpatient center setting, Dr. Mitchell also does research developing new programs to assist patients and survivors to cope with the anxiety and distress and to live more fully with and beyond their cancer. Welcome to the show, Jill. Thank you. Dr. David Andorski is a hematology oncology specialist also at Rocky Mountain Cancer Centers in Boulder, Colorado, with a particular expertise in treating patients with breast cancer and blood cancers. And by blood cancers, we mean leukemias, lymphomas, melanoma. Dr. Andorski strives to provide care based on state-of-the-art medical science while remaining focused on all aspects of the patient's experience, physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual. Thank you for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: It's a pleasure. And one of the things that I, just, I really want to highlight before we even get started into, into the questions is the service that Rocky Mountain Cancer Center provides to patients. It really is holistic in nature. So not only are you looking at the cancer, but you're looking at the patient who has the cancer and the family unit um, to make sure that, that that what you're doing for people is is really holistic in in nature, um, and I and I think that you do that better than most. So I just I want to sort of shout that out before we even get into into the questions. And David, I'm going to start with you. I'm assuming it's okay if I call you by your first name. Sure, um, absolutely. But the, for the purposes of the conversation today, let's sort of level set our listeners and uh, give a definition of a cancer survivor.
2: Sure. It's a great question. I mean, some people have proposed that you know, people are cancer survivors from the day of their diagnosis, and there's, there's a lot of you know, different discussions about the best way to define it. I think when, you know, when Joe and I talk about this and when we think in our own cancer center about cancer survivorship... We're really talking about the period for, for patients that have a, a curable malignancy for that phase that starts once they're done with most of their treatment or the sort of the more intensive parts of their treatment. So to use the example of breast cancer, you know, a woman may get a diagnosis based on a mammogram or she may feel a lump. She'll have surgery almost always. There might be radiation. There might be chemotherapy in there, depending on the circumstances. And that's a very intensive phase where the patients are in the office very frequently, you know, maybe every day, maybe once or twice a month. Um, And then that phase of the treatment ends, and they go to having much less frequent contact with us, maybe follow-up every three months or every six months. Um, They may be still on some treatment. Um, Again, in the case of breast cancer, it would be um, often an anti-estrogen medication, but for other cancers, there might be other sort of longer-term therapies at that moment where the patients are done with most of their treatment and we say, we think we've got the cancer and we'll see you less frequently, that, that's the point where I think we really start to think about survivorship and that, the, you know, our relationship with the patient is changing somewhat, their relationship to us and to their cancer and their life is changing, and that's where we really, really need to pay attention to what their, what their needs are at that, at that moment of transition.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so when you think about that that moment of transition, you know, when is it the best or the most appropriate time to begin to talk about care in that survivorship setting? And, you know, we could use the word survivorship care planning. We could use, you know, transition care planning. But when is really the best time to start to have those conversations?
2: I mean, I, I think I have, a, with, with my own patients, have it at the at sort of various time points. Um, you know, often some patients are really focused on the here and now, and they just want to know, you know, what do I have to do to get through the next week or the next month? Some people, even during our initial visit, will say, well, once I've talked about these are the components I think you're going to need for treatment, they'll say, well, what happens after that? So some patients kind of are already thinking, like, what's going to come in six months or a year? Um, and so it's appropriate to bring it up with a, that that up with them then um, I often will you know in, in outlining sort of the the arc or the trajectory of their treatment we'll will say well and then we'll be done with all that and then and then while well, the u s frequently will have sort of ongoing follow-up for a number of years um, often when they're getting you know within a month or so of finishing um, all of their therapy again that, that intensive phase of therapy that's that's typically the time when we'll first bring it up you know in our clinic we have a you know, survivorship Counseling process where we'll arrange for the patient to have a meeting with one of our nurse practitioners or physician assistants, and they'll have a dedicated meeting, really focusing on survivorship and on that transition. So it's, you know, we begin scheduling that, you know, a month or so before they're done with their with their treatment, um, and then it's often an ongoing conversation with people. Um, you know, with, with most things in medicine, it's often useful to have the same conversation more than once doesn't always sink in or people need clarification. They forget something you told them. Um, But those those are sort of the times when it comes up the most, I think.
1: So for patients who may be listening, you don't have sort of, you know, the the automated, you know, points in time that you're mentioning here, why would they want to have this type of a conversation with their oncology team as they transition into life after active treatment?
2: I think there are a couple of reasons. The first is that um, again, it can be a very disjointing for patients to go from seeing us um, you know, every week or every other week to seeing us every three to six months. And what I what I found is that getting a cancer diagnosis can be very scary for people. But when you have a plan and you have things that you have to do, I have to go to radiation, I have to do chemotherapy. They're really focused on the here and now of you know, just getting through this week or this or this round of treatment. When they're done with that. Um, all of a sudden, people look up and they say, what just happened to my life? What happened to me? What, I didn't think of myself as a patient who had cancer. I didn't think of myself as a cancer survivor. And you have almost these sort of existential concerns pop up for people, which is a lot of what um, you know, the, the program that, you know, that Joe and I have been involved with developing here is designed to, to deal with. Um, you know, people just sort of haven't, they've been they've sort of compartmentalized and didn't really think about those issues. And now when they're done with their therapy, it comes up. So I think it's very useful for patients also to normalize that, to say this is something that a lot of people go through, and the fact that you're having all this anxiety or you're depressed or you feel like you're not over it even though all your family think that you should be back to normal, that's common. And it's not, you know, we don't want to leave you suffering there, but we also want to acknowledge that it's a common experience. But that's, that's news to a lot of patients. So That's another reason to have that mm-hmm. conversation. There's also just the importance of knowing who to call if you have a problem. If a patient has a cold, they can call their primary care doctor. They don't have to call the oncologist for everything. Um, and sometimes patients need help kind of getting guided back to focusing on their other health issues. You know, often when patients have cancer, you know, they, they drop everything else. They stop worrying about their blood pressure, about their diabetes. Um, and it's, it's important to recalibrate and say, well, I think we've probably cured your cancer, but if we don't focus on these, if you don't keep mind of your other health issues, something else is going to happen That's, that may not be related to cancer, but we want to keep you healthy overall. So those are, those are just some of them I could go on, but those are, a lot, those are a number of the reasons that I think of why it's really important for patients to have these sorts of conversations when there's sort of a, uh, a change in the, in, the, in the nature of their treatment and the, their relationship with the cancer center. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So, Jill, I want to bring you into the, into the conversation now and, and you know, probably for the, the rest of this this first segment of the of the show, and, you know, we heard David say something about an existential crisis, you know, and a part of the emotional pieces with, with cancer. So, could you just say a little bit about, you know, what, what happens? Patients are in active treatment, you know, it's a, it's a crisis situation, the team rallies together, and then all of a sudden it's done. Um, so, could you say a little bit about that patient experience at that point in time? Right. Absolutely. It can be such a surprise for patients. Um, and we don't see this with everyone, so we do see a lot of people who finish treatment and they may be cured and they, they are just glad to be done with treatment and, and able to move pretty easily back into their life outside of cancer. Um, but um, as, as David said, it's also very common to see people um, <laughs> crash a little bit emotionally when they finish treatment. Um, and so that fear of recurrence, that feeling of, well, even though treatment is done, I guess this shadow of cancer and the threat of what that might mean continues on in my life and how do I learn to live with that and the uncertainty of what comes next. Um, There can be a real sense of vulnerability at this time, maybe a loss of self-esteem or loss of confidence. Often, Patients are, or post-treatment survivors are still struggling with side effects of treatment, especially fatigue, and so they may be expected to go back to work but may not be or to their, their work outside of uh, the office and still feel you know, very tired and not fully able, um, but there may be much less understanding and social and cultural support at that point in time um, so their their friends and family may be rallying around them, saying, "Hey, it's great you're done. We're we're glad to have you back." And they're feeling like, "Wow, this still is not over for me yet, and I am just beginning to process what I went through over the past so many months of treatment." I think this makes a lot of sense that this happens at this time because when people are in treatment. There are often pretty clear goals. They may have a calendar of, okay, here's when your next treatment happens. You just need to get through these six sessions or so, and then you're done. But once they're done, then there's a lot less structure. And as David said, they're not coming in quite as frequently to visit with their physician or with their, uh, the nurses, or they may not see their fellow patients. And so they also feel a little bit more isolated. They don't have that support and that understanding. Um, so now we'll say it's, it's, it's not all negative. People can have those challenging experiences and also be beginning to experience some growth through that process too. So, but it can be a very confusing time, and I think there's such value in sharing those experiences with fellow survivors and, um, and also receiving validation that this is part of the process. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. And we're going to come back to this social and emotional piece um, just after this break, but we have to just take a quick commercial break, and then we'll continue our conversation with both Jill and David. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Amgen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Insight.
5: I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities' Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
6: Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, and over Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Or call 617-733-5848.
0: Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network
3: of education and hope.
1: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Celgene, Lily Oncology, and Merck. My name is Linda House, and I'm sitting in today for your regular host, Kim Tiedelto, who is away. And with us today, helping us to understand the longer-term needs of cancer survivors and how we plan for transitioning from active treatment into survivorship are Dr. Jill Mitchell, an oncology social worker and researcher, and Dr. David Andorski, a Hematology Oncology Specialists. Both are from the Rocky Mountain Cancer Centers in Boulder, Colorado, and the Rocky Mountain Cancer Centers, for those of you who aren't as aware, have 20 sites across the beautiful state of Colorado, and it's one of the largest community oncology providers in in Colorado and in the United States, so we're very happy to have you both with us um, today. And David, I'm going to start with you in this segment. You know, we just really talked about some of the psychosocial issues, and we're for sure we're going to get back um, to those as you know we learn a little bit more about a, a trial that you you all have ongoing there. But can you talk to us just for a second about survivorship care planning? And we hear a lot about survivorship care planning. It's part of the requirements for the Commission on Cancer, and um, there's been a lot of work that's been done on that. But you know, what really makes a survivorship care plan effective?
2: It's a great question. So, um, you know, the survivorship care plan is basically a, a document that we draft up and review with the patient and give them a copy of during their survivorship counseling visit. Um, and, you know, a number of, of extra bodies, including the American Clio- Society of Clinical Oncology and I, I believe also the National Conference of Cancer Network, they have templates that they that they publish that um, we've adopted for our purposes, um, sort of what the, what the basic elements are. But the, the basic components are... A summary of the patient's diagnosis, including you know the specific name, the subtype, any relevant biological characteristics, the stage, um, then a section on what treatment they actually got, and any complications that they may have experienced themselves. Then there's a section on potential late complications that patients can see. So we, we look at the medications that patients received or their treatments, so and then we'll you know put in um, information about those specific treatments. And the, and the and the potential long term side effects, um, and then there's a section on follow up, which is this is how often we're going to be seeing you. These are the studies that we're going to be doing. Will it just be office visits? Will it be mammograms? Will there be CAT scans in there? Will there be any labs? Um, and then also a uh, sort of a more general list about you know these are things that you should call us about, and then these are things that you should call your primary care doctor about. Again, the to differentiate for patients, you know what's a more of a primary care issue that's that's almost certainly not related to their cancer, and what's a symptom that may be more, you know, concerning for a cancer recurrence or for a side effect of treatment that's emerging late that we might want to be more directly involved with at the beginning. So those are, those are really the three components to the care plan, and it's it's useful because all that information is scattered in the medical chart, but it's. Kind of in dribs and drabs, and it's you know it's in lots of different progress notes. So this summarizes it into a document that's usually three or four pages long, and we keep a copy of it for ourselves, we in our record. Um, we send a copy to the patient's primary care physician so that they're in the loop and they know what the plan is, um, and then we give a copy to the patient. Because what, what the Institute of Medicine they, they published a report I think it was in 2005 called Lost in Translation where they 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 described this phenomenon of cancer patients kind of feeling lost. Yeah, you know, there, there's the psychological component, but there's literally patients didn't know where to go, were lost to follow-up, or didn't have the appropriate follow-up. Um, because maybe the oncologist thought that the primary care doctor was taking care of something and the primary care doctor thought the oncologist was and there wasn't a lot of good communication. So this is part of the, the function of the plan is to get everybody on the same page, the, the patient, their oncology team, and their primary care team, so that everybody knows what the plan is and what, what the contingencies are, um, if new symptoms or, or problems arise. Um, but it's not, just, it's not just creating a document. We also, you know, we don't just mail the document to the patient and say, you know, good luck. We, we have them come in for a real counseling session. And often, you know, patients will raise concerns with us that they, that they have about that survivorship that we can't always anticipate. So having that counseling component is also really important. It's, it's not just about generating a, a summary.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Jill, maybe you could you could take it from there and talk uh, a little bit about that counseling appointment. And, you know, is that a point where you would do distress screening, you know, so that you could better understand sort of what their concerns are or how do you approach that? Right. So, at the survivorship visit, our patients are usually given a, a one-page distress screen to complete that has some... Um, standardized questions about anxiety and depression and then also just a specific question rate from 0 to 10, what's your level of anxiety related to cancer or survivorship? And then those screenings, uh, screens come to me and, and for anyone who indicates a moderate level of depression or anxiety, I will reach out to and um, and talk to them a little bit more about what they're experiencing, what's going on for them. Some people... You know, don't need anything more than that initial reach-out call. Some people then want to come in and meet one-on-one with the social worker to talk more in-depth about about what they're experiencing and it can be just so helpful to have it validated um, what they've been through and what they're experiencing. And then many people also uh, appreciate learning about support groups or um, this uh, group intervention that we we've, we've developed specifically for post-treatment survivors, so that's the follow-up. And so, what are, what are the most common concerns that you hear from patients in those early follow-up visits or those early survivorship meetings? Right. So, certainly, um, fear of recurrence <laughs> is a big one, even for patients who had early stage cancer and are essentially cured. Um, that fear of recurrence and that uncertainty uh, can weigh so heavily. Uh, And then related to that is the concern about, you know, am I doing enough? I feel like I'm supposed to be changing my diet. I'm supposed to be exercising more, sleeping more, uh, taking better care of myself, doing this and that, and not letting myself stress out. And and so there can be a lot of... uh, uh, pressure that people feel to, <laughs> to do survivorship right. Um, it can also feel like a very long, lonely time. People may be questioning what was important to me before dealing cancer before having cancer doesn't feel as important now. And so what do I want to focus my time and my energy on moving forward? So there can be just a lot of reevaluation of life priorities and, and even relationships. At that time, mm-hmm. and then um, I'm just trying to to paint the picture for our listeners um, because the the service is amazing so when when you think about you know your active phase of treatment, there is a pretty thorough physical review as well as uh, a social or emotional you know review when they're either in the office or in the clinic or in the chemo suite. so in addition to the distress screening piece, what type of you know physical review happens as a part of the survivorship visits?
2: Well I, I think when when, the, when our nurse practitioner or, or physician says the meet with the patient they'll they'll talk to them about any symptoms that they're having. I mean, when, when we see patients for regular follow visits, we're, we're typically doing a physical exam and, and that's another opportunity to really assess, um, to sort of lay hands on somebody and, and assess if they're having, or having any ongoing physical problems. Um, usually, if, if someone is having issues, we'll kind of already know about it. I mean, the most common we see is, is a problem called neuropathy, which is um, an injury to the muscles, to the nerves that go to the fingertips and toes that can result from some chemotherapy drugs. Um, that, that can be a real problem for people. It's, it's, it's the, the drugs that cause it are among the very commonly used chemotherapy agents, and the problem often doesn't manifest itself until towards the end of treatment, but it can be really bothersome to patients beyond that point, um, and, and it, that can kind of linger on for a long time after their treatment. Um, but So usually just, just taking a, a good history from someone about what's going on, what they're experiencing is, is, is mostly what you need for that sort of assessment.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, it sounds like it's very comprehensive, physical and emotional, and I think, you know, one of the, the takeaways from, you know, what, what I'm hearing is is that, that patients and families should feel very free to come to that visit and be as open as they would have been, or even more so, than they were when they were getting active treatment. Exactly. Great. So we are going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, I really want to talk about the study, Jill, that you had briefly referenced. I really want to dig deep into it because it really is pretty fascinating, um, and uh, I think a lot of really good information uh, for our listeners. So this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be right back after this commercial.
4: Cancer, it's a lonely word, terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help.
3: Support from cancer
4: survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you of Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer.
5: Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities' Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
6: Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, and over Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Or call 617-733-5848.
0: Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions. How to get comfortable with new physical realities. How to reassure worried family members or explain to friends your priorities have changed. Or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of
3: education and hope.
0: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
1: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your host today, Linda House, and today's episode is brought to you in part by ASI, Gilead, Janssen Biotech, Pfizer Oncology, Pharmacyclics, Takeda, and Sarah. Today's show is focused on planning for life after cancer. Think about survivorship in the post-acute treatment phase of um, living after cancer. And we've really touched on a bit of what survivorship care planning looks like, what the clinic visits might look like, the the post-care visits. And we're so lucky to have both Dr. Jill Mitchell and Dr. David Andorsky here from Rocky Mountain Cancer Centers. And I would love to spend uh, the part of the rest of the show really diving deep into a clinical trial that you are working on, and, and I think you know we should probably preface uh, the conversation by saying we are not necessarily talking about a treatment trial where you're looking at drugs to cure the cancer. You know, those are the that's what normally comes to mind. I think when we talk about clinical trial, but you're looking at an intervention to help cancer patients who are experiencing anxiety as they're transitioning into that that post treatment um, phase. And I know that you're doing this work with Dr. Joanna. Arch as the clinical investigator, but the two of you are certainly leads um, on the on the study. So, uh, Jill, I'd, I'd love to start with you, and if you could just lead us to understand, you know, what led you to pursue this intervention trial, um, and even term term that differently if you think it would be um, helpful for our listeners. And um, you know, wh- where are you now in that process? All right. Well, so I think oh, we have always been fortunate to be able to offer a number of uh, support and educational programs to our patients, um, and many of those have some basis in evidence. But uh, it's much harder to find uh, approaches that have been fully tested and that we um, have evidence we can show that that this really, why this really benefits our patients, and whether it's worth their time. And uh, to participate in, um, so I think for that reason it 's very important to be able to uh, to test some of these psychosocial interventions so several years ago, I had the good fortune of meeting Dr. Joanna Arch, who is uh, the principal investigator on all of this research, and she 's an associate professor and clinical psychologist at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And she had done extensive work with um, people with anxiety, but hadn't really applied that to looking at people with, with dealing with cancer. So when we got to talking, uh, we were we thought this would be a great group to to focus on and to develop an intervention for. And so we developed a program that we called Valued Living for Survivors, and it's based on a an. a a theory called Acceptance and uh, Commitment Theory, or ACT for short. And um, it's a seven-week program that people participate in in a group, and we meet for two hours each week in the group. Um, And so we've been studying that for the past seven years now. And so let's step back and just, so the goal of this study... Um, and, and you've you already had you've already had a proof of concept study, a smaller proof of concept study. Is that right? Or we well, so no, we started with uh, developing a pilot program, and uh, we re- we enrolled about forty two people who were in that early post treatment phase, and they participated in this seven week program, um, and we asked them to complete questionnaires to assess their level of depression and anxiety and sense of vitality at six different times. So three times before starting into the group, then in the middle of the group, and at the very end of completing the seven-week program, and then at three months after completing the program. And so in that initial pilot study, we were looking at how does participating in this intervention compare to just change of time alone, um, and so from that, we were able to see that this might have an impact on decreasing their depression, their anxiety, um, decreasing intrusive, intrusive thoughts about cancer and fear of recurrence, and also increasing their sense of vitality, improving pain. Uh, so in that initial study, we were able to see that this, this was probably a promising approach and we were also able to get a lot of feedback from our participants, what was working for them, what, uh, what really stuck with them from the program, what might we change, so we could develop a very uh, formalized and, and create a clear-cut manual about how to offer this intervention. So that was the initial pilot study, and we published some of the data from that in 2015. But then, based off of that work, we were able to... Uh, develop a much larger study, and a randomized controlled trial. And so, in that randomized controlled trial, we were able to enroll about 100, almost 140 participants, and some of the people participated in the in the seven-week intervention, and some of them just received usual care, which could look like anything from meeting with a a social worker on occasion individually to participate in whatever, whatever other groups were out there or whatever else that they normally would have pursued. And so, that's the study that we have just been finishing collecting data on. Um, and so we won't have that to present on until later, but that will give us much more clarity about what is the real impact of this kind of intervention.
2: Hmm.
1: And, and and so, what type of things are you are you measuring? Are you measuring a decrease in distress? Are you measuring what 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 are the the endpoints there? Right, right. Well, some of the key things that we're looking at are how does this impact potential depression, anxiety, um, uh, their experience of pain, their healthcare utilization. Are they seeing their doctor? more often than maybe they need to because they're feeling anxious, um, how does this impact their feeling of pain, their sense of vitality in life. Um, so, those are some of the key things and we're also looking at one of, one of the primary mediators is are we able to help people increase their flexibility with how they're dealing with a challenging thoughts about cancer, like fear of recurrence. Interesting, and I had heard that there um, that, that, a num- that Kaiser actually did a study years ago where they looked at um, patients coming back for what they called worried well visits, right? Their anxiety was so high about, in particular, you know, a fear of recurrence or that there might have been something wrong. That just the anxiety is what sort of drove them um, back into seeing the healthcare team, and it sounds mm-hmm. like that this. Intervention is designed to potentially um, help mitigate some of some of that. Right, exactly. Um, and also David... just help them with their experience generally, and help them to move forward in their life. Jill, can you repeat that? I think I, I interrupted you. What did you say there? Uh, oh, and and just to help them move forward from this experience in their life, so that a fear of recurrence doesn't necessarily paralyze them or or stop them from uh, doing what they really want in their life. Mm -hmm. And I do want to come back to that as as, as well. Um, David, can you speak to the fact that you know this this kind of a, of a trial is happening in the community hospital setting. You know when we first started, I talked about how I really thought Rocky Mountain is so good at, at, at taking care of patients holistically. Um, talk about this type of a trial. You know being done in in your particular setting.
2: So, um, you know, at least 80% of, of patients in the United States receive their cancer treatment in a community cancer center like ours as opposed to being in an academic center that's affiliated with a medical school or university. Um, and those environments are, are different. You know, they're, they're less oriented towards research. They tend to be smaller. They tend to be more patient-oriented and less focused on research and training. Um, but it's a different environment. And, and so a lot of the publications on survivorship and on these sorts of psychosocial interventions, when they come out of academic centers, sometimes those centers have big grants or, you know, lots of money and resources to put into the problem that just wouldn't be feasible to scale up and and give to everybody. So it's it's very, it's good to show that those things work and it generates important data. But in terms of another uh, uh, cancer centers around the country, particularly community oncology centers, um, adopting them, you know they, they may not be that adoptable because they're so specific to certain sets of patients or they are very are very um you know intensive in terms of you know, social worker time or things like that so part of our our explicit aim in in doing the research where we're doing it is to say, you know can we develop an intervention that works that's also you know deliverable within a community oncology setting where most patients are getting their care um it'd It'd be like manufacturing a drug and then you you can't really give the drug to most people it's not It's not as useful. Um, so certainly, we've, we've drawn on you know, research that's come before from academic centers in, in developing our own intervention. But by doing it here, as opposed to the more traditional site of, of research, um, you know, we can sort of demonstrate that that this is something that any cancer center that's committed to doing this, this sort of um, this sort of counseling is, is going to be able to to do. Um, in addition, just for our own patients, I mean, we we also have a, a, a very robust um you know drug research program where we have lots of clinical trials of the more traditional variety available to our patients. And we we really believe that we want to bring the best of cancer care to our patients where they happen to be and not have enough have to travel to you know a distant a distant academic center or somewhere that's way across town um in order to get the care that they need. Because because they're in so frequently it's it's not you know once a year a thing. They but they could be in here every week or every two weeks. So doing doing sort of cutting edge that psycho-oncology research is just as much a part of our mission of doing, allowed, giving our patients access to cutting-edge research for oncology more broadly.
1: Well, and I know that you, uh, that you mentioned Lost in Transition, the IOM report called Lost in Transition, and there's also an IOM report that was issued around 2008 um, called Cancer Care for the Whole Patient, and it really did talk about um, the need, if, if, you're, if you're providing quality... Cancer care, a part of that requires that you're providing quality psychosocial care um, as well. So you're really firing on, on all cylinders there.
2: Yeah, exactly, man. I, I think if, you have, if you're in a patient-oriented um, practice environment, you know, you, you, you don't look just at numbers or metrics or what is your scan show or did we get all the chemo that we thought we wanted to. It's, it's more like how is this helping you as an individual within the context of your family and your community and your, and your work and, and all that. Um, so, it is, it is very important us to, to be addressing all those different components.
1: Yes, for sure. We are going to have to take a quick commercial break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we will be right back.
4: Cancer, it's a lonely word, terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you of Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer.
5: I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities' Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
6: Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, and over Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. or call 617-733-5848.
0: Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope.
6: People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Mealtrain, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar, to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code Magnolia B,
3: or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org.
0: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
1: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's episode is brought to you in part by Agios, Stelis, Janssen, Taiho, and Veristem Oncology. I am your guest host today, Linda House, and we have been joined by Dr. Jill Mitchell and Dr. David Andorsky from the Rocky Mountain Cancer Centers, we've had such a great conversation about cancer survivorship, and really a a different part of the definition than we normally hear. We normally think about cancer survivorship being at the point of diagnosis, but we're really talking about transitioning into that phase of life after cancer treatment, and um, Jill, I just wanted to go back to some of the conversation that we were having about the intervention that you have done um, a lot of work on, the valued living intervention, and I'm wondering if If people have access to that today, um, I know that that, that you had done a a pilot study, that you are finishing up a broader study, but if if our listeners say, gosh, this really sounds interesting and something that I could really benefit from, is this type of approach available to them today? Uh, Unfortunately, it's only available within the Rocky Mountain Cancer Center's network right now, but my hope is that... Um, Once we see the results of the uh, randomized control trial, which we'll have later this year, um, if those are consistently as positive as they were in the pilot study, then my ultimate hope is that we can train more social workers locally and also across the country to be able to offer this at their, their sites. So, yeah, that's the ultimate intention to be able to offer this more widely. So stay tuned. <laughs> yes, stay tuned. Now yeah, that's 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 terrific. So let's let's talk briefly then about um where people can go for support. Um if if they are either beginning their journey or through their journey, when you think about you know the patients that you've seen over the years that you've been taking care of people with cancer um and and you, you know, you know some of the things that they're experiencing, this idea of, you know, recurrence and um, the uncertainty of being, you know, taken away from sort of that safety net of acute therapy. What what would you suggest to them um, around going and, and, and receiving support? Well, I think certainly, you know, starting with their oncologist's office and um, that they can ask about whether there's a social worker that they can meet with there, Um, Unfortunately, not every clinical site has a social worker, um, but that's a great place to start. Uh, Cancer Support Community also offers a a, a helpline, so there are social workers you can speak to over the phone if they're not available in your community, and they may also be able to help guide you as to any local programs, uh, um, cancer support programs, or educational programs Programs, especially where you can meet with fellow survivors, I think that is so important because one of the things that we saw in our program is even just in the initial uh, session where we got patients together or post-treatment survivors together and asked them to talk about what were some of the fears and concerns that they were still struggling with, just to be able to voice those out loud and realize that they were not the only ones having those thoughts, being told that they may be cured, but still just feeling this intense fear of recurrence, even being able to share that thought and receive validation for it is, I think, critical for a lot of our survivors. So that validation can come from a social worker at the site who's familiar with with all of this, or from uh, fellow survivors through support groups Sometimes there are exercise programs in communities specific uh, specific to people who are recovering from cancer. We have some hiking groups here locally, um, but again, yeah, some of the national resources like Cancer Support Community and their helpline uh, can be very valuable. Mm-hmm. Jill, let me ask you a question that may be on the minds of either our listeners or families who might be listening in. Is there a is there a time frame for for people? Um, you know, if, if, if somebody's listening and, and they may be five years away from their their treatment, but they think, gosh, this really sounds like some of the things that I'm thinking about or some of the things that I'm feeling, is there a, is there a time frame where people are too far away from treatment or not far enough away from treatment to be sort of assisted? Uh, I think it's, so individual, I would say say it's never too late to reach out for help and support around us. Um, So I think we tend to see a lot within the first few months after people finish um, chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery. That tends to be one of the most intense times. Um, And then for some people, you know, they feel almost back to, quote, normal within a year. Uh, whether they receive support or not, but certainly we do I do see patients who are years out and are still struggling with what did I go through and and how did that change my life and um, And I still am afraid of recurrence, and how do I deal with that so um, yeah, certainly it, it's perfectly reasonable that some people may still be processing that years later. Um, and always appropriate for them to seek out support at that time okay, great, thank you. And what about uh, anniversaries? Does that trigger anything for people? An Anniver- <laughs> definitely anniversaries can be a trigger. Um, any scans we have a great term for it scan anxiety uh, can be a challenging time um, the for especially for uh, breast cancer survivors the month of October or the color pink can be a trigger. Sometimes it can feel supportive to see all of that in October but many times it can be just uh, can be triggering for people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that and um, I just wanted to, to hand each of you the opportunity to to respond to uh, just just a question around, you know, any final thoughts. So when... You know, we've covered a lot here today, and you both have seen a lot through your study and through your uh through your patients but you know think about the listeners um on this call today who may be either patients or caregivers and what what final thoughts do you have for them if they period you know defined as lost in transition what what would what advice would you have for them and david i'm gonna I'm gonna start with you for this one.
2: Um, I, I think what I would, would tell people is it's, um, it's very normal and very common for people to have all kinds of feelings and emotions after their therapy is done and to not feel like they can just jump back into their life. Uh, I think people are often, as Jill said before, very surprised by that, but it's very, very common. And uh, people should reach out for help and call their oncologist, call their oncology social worker, talk to their primary care doctor. Um, if they're having trouble, um, because you know there are there are ways to help people. People do make it through these transitions, but if someone's struggling a lot, they shouldn't suffer in silence.
1: And Jill, yeah, well, that's pretty much exactly what I would say. Just to you know acknowledge and validate that, that this can be a real and pretty common part of the experience. And it's uh, sometimes we see patients who just fly through treatment, power through it, don't seem to have any issues, and that, then at the end. Uh, they're tearful all the time and it can come as such a shock and I think just knowing, no, you're not going crazy, that this, this is part of processing that experience and it's a great time to reach out for help. Um, the other thing I would emphasize is um, to caregivers and loved ones, of so people going through cancer, uh, to, uh, to have some compassion and have a little extra patience during that time but also know that, They have been through a lot, and um, so that caregiver, that loved one, has experienced the illness themselves in some way, and um, that they may also need support around this time. Great. Excellent advice. Jill and David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It has been truly wonderful to spend this last hour with you, and I hope that you'll come back and give us the results of your study absolutely look forward to that. Thank you, Linda. Great. Thank you. It has been my pleasure to have have all of you join us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am Linda House, the president of the Cancer Support Community. Kim Tebeldo will be back with you next week. And as mentioned earlier in the show, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. For more information about our programs, please visit our website at www.cancersupportcommunity.org or give us a call at 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well.